You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Hem Project. Panel 5, Blue Humanities, was convened and chaired by Hannah Boast and featured Ellen Howley, who presented on Seacraft, the Watery Poetics of Ireland and the Caribbean, Thomas Beitendeck, who presented on Body Became Sea, Sea Became Body, Ecological Cyborgism in Amy Sackville's Orkney, and Bernadette Fox, who presented on Samuel Beckett's Scavenging Seagulls and Sinking Boats, Transcending Waste in the End. Thank you for coming to the second panel of the second day of the Empire and Ecologies Conference. Um, my name is Hannah Bose and I'm an assistant professor in English at University College Dublin and a member of the Environmental Humanities Research Group. Um, I'm delighted to have the chance um, to host this panel of um, uh, three early career researchers working in the Blue Humanities um, who are really at the forefront of this field in Ireland. Um, thanks to Sarah and to Megan for giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, so our speakers today are Ellen Howley, um, Tomas Beitendijk and Bernadette Fox. Um, hopefully you've had a chance to view their presentations on the website. Um, today they're going to give a brief five minutes or so recap, um, a kind of overview of their talks, um, and then we'll have a Q&A, um, beginning with some questions from the panellists to each other, and then opening out to questions from the audience. Um, please feel free to drop your questions into the Q&A um, at any time, and then we'll come to them um, in the Q&A session. Our first speaker um, is Dr. Ellen Howley, who's lecturer in the School of English at Dublin City University. Um, her research focuses on the sea in Irish and Caribbean literature, and this forms the basis of her paper today. Um, okay, so thanks um, so much for organising the conference. It's been really great so far, um, particularly to Hannah for organising this panel. Um, so I'm going to briefly recap my paper, which was called Seacraft, the Watery Poetics of Ireland and the Caribbean. The larger point that I started with in the paper was really around eco-criticism and the relationship to the blue humanities, as well as then drawing in the perspective of empire that, that this conference is in interested in as well. And I've started here with three quotes that I think are useful to think about in this respect. So we have Cheryl uh, Glotfelty, who in an early uh, book on eco-criticism, defines the eco-critical lens as one that takes an earth-centered approach to literary studies. I think this earth-centered approach really directed the field towards landed concerns, things like pastoral, things like wilderness and so on, and, and drew attention away from water in general, but particularly in the sea. And um, this is what Margaret Cohen terms hydrophagia, which is the kind of forgetting of the sea. So forgetting the sea as a kind of environmental space to also draw attention to and, and think about. And I'm reading this then alongside Maeve Tynan's characterization of 
the dualistic structures of Western imperial logic, which privileges terra firma over the lacuna of aquanullius. So this sense that the land and that, that kind of firm land um, has value from a colonial perspective because of economic or resource value. And the sea is just a kind of void to be crossed or contended with in search of those terra firma. So more broadly then, uh, sorry, more specifically, the paper looks at four poets from Ireland and from the Caribbean. So we have Seamus Heaney, Derek Walcott from St. Lucia, Eleni Quillanon from um, the Republic of Ireland and Lorna Goodison from Jamaica. And in the paper, I'm showing how these poets turn to the sea to find a way of writing poetry. So they're very much inspired by the ebbs and flows of the sea in their language and in their form, and that this then becomes a kind of resistant poetics in a kind of um, post-colonial sense. So just a kind of couple of quotes to pick up on that I look a bit more closely at in, in the paper. So we have the likes of Nikwilnon saying, the, the water, this water music ransacked my mind and started it growing again in a new perspective. Do not expect to feel so free on land. Likewise, um, Walcott saying that his the language, um, his the noise of his language is in the roar of seas of a lost ocean. It is a fresh sound. So very much the the sound and the movement of the water is influencing the poetry that these poets are writing, and it gives them a certain freedom, a certain newness and uniqueness that that is different from the poetry that has come before. Heaney in his collection um, North, which is the collection that most explicitly deals with um, the Northern Irish Troubles in the 1970s, turns to the sea to reaffirm his poetic mission. And these in the poem, these kind of voices arise from the sea and, and tell him to compose in darkness and keep your eye clear and so on. And then finally, Goodison also draws attention to the sea and this kind of um, false narrative around the division of the world's waters into five or so oceans and seven seas. Um, and, and I talk a little bit in the paper about the way in which she's writing this poem and its lineation shows the kind of falseness of that. So the poetry itself becomes resistant in the same way that the water is resistant to being um, kind of categorized in, in this kind of cartogra cartographic way. Um, some of the main things that I hope people kind of take away from the paper and, and that maybe we can discuss um, more generally um, is that the sea is not devoid of value for these poets. So it is invested with cultural and poetic value. Um, it offers them a new vocabulary that resists and is separate from this kind of logic of Western imperialism. But at the same time, the sea does remain resistant. It can never be fully known or fully kind of understood. And I think that's partly why it's attractive to these poets um, in, in this way. Uh, in, in, from my perspective then here, particularly the shared Atlantic space offers the capacity for cross-colony identification, which Edward Said talks about in kind of later work, um, this sense of drawing colonies together. And finally, the, the major point that I would like to make is that moving away from these land-based concerns does open up um, new routes to literary scholars and, and you know, more broadly as well. Um, so thanks for that. These are some of the ways you can get in contact if you need to. And I'm looking forward to the, to the discussion. Thanks, Ellen. That's a, a great summary of your paper and of, um, I think, a great way to start the idea of the way that thinking about the sea and thinking about water might take us away from land-based concerns and open up new ways of thinking, which I think should come through um, in our next couple of talks. So I'm going to move on now to our next speaker, um, Dr. Tomas Beitendijk, um, 
is based at Dublin City University, also in the School of English, uh, where he recently completed his PhD on contemporary poetics of the sea. Uh, thank you, Anna, and thank you for, to the organisers as well for, um, for having me and for organising such a wonderful conference. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I don't have any slides, but I will, just like Ellen, um, give a brief overview of my, uh, my paper. And there's a few things I was thinking about over the last week or so that I think might, might feed into the discussion. So I'll slip them in there at the end and see what, what, what we uh, make of it. Uh, so my paper constituted a discussion of uh, a close reading, mostly of Amy Sackville's Orkney, which is a novel from 2013, I believe. Um, and this novel, it kind of it kind of explores the tension between um, a man named Richard, who is an aging professor of English uh, at an unnamed university, and um, a girl, uh, his his young wife, they've recently married. She never receives a name, uh, which is I think of particular interest to the analysis as well. Um, she was an ex-student of his, and now they're on their honeymoon. Um, and what I've performed in the paper is I analyzed the, the tension between, between these two people. Um, so on the one hand, Richard performs all these dichotomies rather than seeking to overcome them. So he's very much a, um, a figure very, quite, of, of quite oppressive masculinity, um, enacting dichotomies. Um, uh, of all sorts of dichotomies as well. Um, so nature, culture, man, woman, um, enacting all of these. And he's the only narrator in the novel. So it's very hard to tell what's going on other than, you know, what he's telling the reader. Uh, so it's a matter of reading between the lines as well to really be able to, to work with this novel, I find. And then on the other hand, there is the girl who remains nameless and mostly voiceless, uh, but who for actions performs what I call a kind of eco-cyborgism. Um, and this is quite a different cyborgism than what we would find, for instance, in Donna Haraway's Camille stories. Um, so I find the Camille stories, for instance, quite uh, techno-scientific in their hybridization. So there is a strong element of, for instance, gene sharing, gene merging, um, techno-scientific intervention in order to create a sort of cyborg experience. Um, and I think Orkney quite, and I don't think Haraway would disagree with this, but uh, I think Orkney quite strongly demonstrate that this can also be done in a, in a non-technological way, sort of ecological hybridization, um, which stems, I believe, from, from an awareness of the porosity of human and non-human experience. So much more like something we would find maybe in Stacey Alimo's work. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of Exposed, her book Exposed 2016. Um, so to go back to the paper, to the paper uh, and to the book, ultimately in Orkney, the girl disappears and she seems to have become the sea. Um, but as I also show in my presentation, that tension between Richard, Richard's normative and dichotomy enforcing masculinity and her ecofeminism is, is re resolved quite a bit earlier, or at least it comes to a head quite a, a bit earlier when the girl enters into sort of ever deepening entanglement with the water um, when she takes a bath and she uses Richard's body to force herself under. Uh, so she overcomes his, his oppression and his sort of oppressive presence by using him for her own wishes against his wishes. Uh, it's a very powerful piece of writing. And she almost retools him in a way, and she makes him an instrument in her own process of entanglement and hybridization. Um, and then ultimately, at the end of the novel, she does disappear. And Richard is predictably does not understand what has happened. He's slumping in a chair. He's drunk. He's still trying to make sense of what has happened. And the girl is gone. And, 
has taken her leave. Um, I think one question that is of particular interest and what I've been thinking about a lot is, and it's something I continue to grapple with as I work with this material, is that to what extent a reading, even like the one I perform or what anyone could perform uh, of this kind of novel and of this kind of narrative, to what extent does that constitute the very same kind of filling in or silencing of the experience of a character that doesn't have a voice? Uh, so this girl does not have a voice or barely has a voice. She does not have a name. Uh, but the very act of analyzing a novel like that and relying on Richard's voice and Richard's narration in order to come to an understanding, um, to what extent is that a silencing act in itself? And how can we overcome something like that in literary analysis? Um, is it even possible to deduce who the girl is, what she represents, if anything, um, what her relationship is to the non and more human uh, elements around her? Uh, is that even possible without performing an act, a silencing act to some extent? Uh, so these are questions I grapple with and questions I'm hoping that as I come to a bigger, a better understanding of, of the novel, um, develop the analysis and see how can I do this in a, in a balanced way without enacting these dichotomies that I'm seeking to describe or overthrow. Um, and then I'm also, and I think this, this feeds in particularly to uh, Bernadette and Ellen's work, um, what is the value of this, the writing itself? So for instance, in Orkney, there's a lot of silences, a lot of line breaks. Uh, sometimes there is what, what, what you could almost call like a sort of uh, tidal writing. So long sentences, short sentences, long sentences, following each other, broken up by silences. Um, and what, are, what is the element of those, those other elements or the influence of those other elements on the writing? Uh, so these tidal lapping patterns uh, that we find, uh, there is an array of moistures in the work. Um, in, it, it, it's, 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 you sense it everywhere, the moistures. Uh, what do these do? Can these maybe help us to overcome these dichotomies further and to understand what is happening here? Um, so I, I think that this might feed in somewhat to, to Bernadette and Ellen's work. Uh, so I'm just kind of putting it out there. Um, and yeah, I'm, 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 I'll leave it at that for the moment and looking forward to, uh, to going into discussion later. Brilliant, thanks Tomas. That's, that's a lot for us to think about. And thank you for drawing, drawing out some of those um, connections of those kind of ideas of Orkney as like an island space, which seem to intersect in interesting ways with Ellen's talk. Um, but also of, um, the, of form and, and how that might um, relate to thinking about water and water spaces. Um, so I'm going to move on now to our last speaker, um, Bernadette Fox. Bernadette is a PhD student in the School of English Drama and Film at University College Dublin, um, where she's conducting research on Beckett and the Sea. So good morning. Um, first, can I extend my thanks to Megan and Sarah for organizing such a fascinating symposium, to panel for chairing this, to Hannah for chairing this panel, and to my fellow panelists, Ellen and Tomas. I found your papers inspiring, and finally, to my supervisor for his unfailing enthusiasm and support. And my PhD, which I'm midway through, focuses on the seascapes found within Samuel Beckett's text, predominantly his prose works in English, and I use the term seascape as a shorthand to refer to the sea and its environment, but also for diverse individual elements such as grains of sand, waves, and in the context of today, seabirds, sewage, waste, and boats. I'm interested in how the marine and or coastal environments depicted in Beckett's works are integral to a materialist and eco-critical reading of Beckett with particular respects to our contemporary responses to the sea, 
to environmental anxieties connected with our 21st century lives and also the cultural significance of Beckett seascapes for Dubliners or Ireland. As a local, I'm familiar with the coastal environment around Dublin Bay, which Beckett himself experienced in his youth. But my awareness to the seascape um, is also linked to my uh, sailing experiences. At least it was active prior to this pandemic, which has kept me shorebound. As a result, my close readings instinctively connect with Dublin Bay, but I also extend my readings to more globally situated nautical or marine environments, including Ellen, the Caribbean. To set the context, uh, my video presentation for this symposium is titled Samuel Beckett's Scavenging Seagulls and Sinking Boats, Transcending Waste in the End. It builds on a recent presentation and is very much a work in progress. And the recent presentation focused on seabirds feeding or scavenging on surge in Beckett's novella, The End, and in his novel, Malone Dies. The imagery is presented in four short sentences that appear to be loaded with significance, but how to grasp or articulate this significance was the challenge I face. Um, the quotes briefly are um, from the end. I heard faintly the cries of gulls ravening about the mouth of the sewer nearby in a spew of yellow foam, if my memory serves you right. The filth gushes into the river and the slush of birds above screaming with hunger and fury. And in Malone Dies, the quote is, his back is turned to the river, but perhaps it appears to him in the dreadful cries of the gulls that evening assembles in paroxysms of hunger around the outflows of the sewers opposite the Bellevue Hotel. Yes, they too, in a last frenzy before nightfall and its high crags, swoop, ravening about the awful. The specific quotes are in the video, but the seagulls are situated alongside sewerage outfall pipes. This location is the site at which land-based waste, including literally our human waste, is disposed of or rejected into the sea. This waste, which includes human fecal matter, can be read as something that we reject, perhaps as decay or even as death. Yet, as food for the seagulls, it is apparently life-enhancing. Thus, Beckett sewerage has a dual focus as it is life enhancing, even as it simultaneously pollutes the sea and the coastal environment. And while this is a textual scenario created in the early 1940s, in November 2020, the Environmental Protection Agency reported that, quote, Ireland's largest treatment plant produces almost half, 44% of Ireland's wastewater, end quote. Moreover, it is operating above capacity and is therefore discharging sewerage below EU standards into the sea. And this discharge includes raw sewerage. When reading Beckett's texts, I visualised a particular site for his sewerage outfall pipes, that is, into the mouth of the River Liffey, where it meets or mingles with the sea, i.e. near Poolbeg, which coincidentally Incidentally, is a site adjacent to Ireland's largest surge treatment plant. That current plant was completed in 2003, but the facilities are there since the 1900s. Okay. Intrigued by this juxtaposition, I invoked a new materialist or eco-critical reading of Beckett's sewerage, considering how Karen Barad's concept of agency applied to Beckett's waste as it transitioned from part of us as fecal matter to sewerage waste, to food for seagulls as it journeyed for la from land to sea. I also leveraged Jane Bennett's argument that matter could no longer be considered as passive or non-active, 
and questioned what would happen if I read Beckett's Seascapes or Beckett's Surridge through, through Bennett's lens, focusing not only on Beckett's scavenging seagulls, but also on the Surridge itself. Moreover, Barad argues that matter gains agency not solely on its doing or being, but on its engagement with other forms of matter in its intraactivity. I read this intraactivity as occurring between the seagulls and the outfall pipe, or more specifically, between the seagulls and the contents of the outfall pipe, which is no longer simply human waste in the many ways we understand this term, but is now a food source. In the Q&A that follows that original presentation, I was asked about connections between the sewerage waste and the vision of a suicide in the closing pages of the novella, The End. Exploring these possibilities is the subject of my visual presentation. I investigated this connection through a close reading of the closing scenes in the text, although I found more questions than answered as I explored this topic. And I imagine the discussions here today will open up other areas to explore. Published in English in 1977, The End was originally a French novella titled La Fin, published in 1954, and is the final novella in a collection of four. A crude narrative summary could be described as follows, and I state crude narrative summary. The protagonist is released into the world from somewhere like a hospital or asylum, only to wander about apparently lost, undertaking random journeys and brief encounters along the way but is ultimately depicted as alone before arriving at the mouth of a river, that is, near the sea. There he constructs a rough shelter within an old, unattended boat and dreams of drifting out to sea to drown. It is towards the close of the novella when the protagonist is lying within this boat, which is on shore and thus out of the water, that he is within earshot of the seagulls noisily feeding on sewerage. I connect this waste surge with the protagonist as he describes in detail, firstly, how he defecates within the boat, depositing his own waste within his sleeping space. And thereafter, I begin to explore this trope of waste in relation to death and this dream or vision of suicide from a number of perspectives. But if this is transcending waste, I'm still fine tuning my conclusion. And finally, while I admit and it's definitely a warning to a dark presentation focusing on sewage and suicide, Beckett introduces humour, albeit morbid humour, as the reader realises that the protagonist's hat, to keep it safe, is tied securely to the protagonist by a piece of string, which is anchored, and the protagonist himself is chained to the boat, but the boat is doomed to sink. Enjoy the presentation. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Bernadette. Um, yeah, some really interesting ideas that you, you bring out there and through your talk. I mean, a, a different perspective, bringing in um, animals in this, that live on coastal environments, um, but but also that kind of way, um, as Ellen mentioned at the start, that the sea is kind of often seen as a separate space and therefore something that we can just endlessly dump waste into without it having kind of any effect on oceanic ecologies. Um, so... I can see questions already starting to appear in the Q&A, which is great. Um, please feel free to carry on uh, dropping some questions in there and we'll come to them in a moment. Um, but I thought I would just begin um, with a question for all of the speakers. Um, kind of about broader theoretical trends, which, which you all gestured towards. Um, 
So much environmental humanities research at the moment it seems to be structured around scenes. Um, they're kind of endlessly generating more and more different kinds of scenes, but the ones that seem to dominate are the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene. Um, so I wondered whether you thought of your projects and your research as in dialogue with these ideas, as kind of building on them or, or, or challenging those ideas. So it's kind of a, a big question. <laughs> Um, any, any of you who kind of wants to come in first, feel free to. I think for me, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that the, the wide array of and proliferating scenes that there are to kind of you have to. I find you have to situate yourself in in relation to that in order to be able. To, it's such a big sort of topic in the field that you, you can't really um, avoid it. Probably for the best. Uh, what I did in my thesis and what I think I'll continue doing is um, take issue with all of them, which is it's always a good idea. Um, but I think in the end, Anthropocene, probably the most prolific term, is probably the most problematic, uh, but at least it identifies a common, a sort of common problem to all of them, which is the human species. Um, whereas I find that the capitalocene, the plantation scene, they highlight very specific or very broad themes. Um, but the risk is that I, I think all of them are valid, but I think all of them ultimately point towards the sort of the, the influence of the human species on, on the, um, the current epoch that we live in. Uh, so in the end, um, Anthropocene almost becomes more, nothing more than a, than a dirty umbrella term, a quick umbrella term, but it does work in that sense. Uh, in my thesis, I kind of challenge it still because I believe calling it the Anthropocene makes it all about the human species. So it, it veers towards a sense of anthropocentrism that is exactly what we need to step away from. Um, do I have an alternative scene in that case? I don't know if it's helpful to introduce any more scenes to the party at this stage. Um, so ultimately, I think it's something to grapple with. For me, it would be pointing out the common denominator and then challenging, challenging the human species, the role of the human species, and the sort of idea that the world revolves around the sun of the human species. Um, and proposing moving away from that, uh, much in the sense of Bernadette does, I think, towards this sort of an idea of thing power, um, Jane Bennett's thing power towards um, a network configuration. Um, so I'm thinking of Bruno Latour, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with um, that sense of it being a kind of dirty umbrella term, unfortunately. Um, I, I suppose in my own work, it's not a term I ever really engaged with um, and it's only thanks to a recent conference that I attended that I'm starting to kind of think about why um, and I think it was mentioned yesterday as well that sense that you know it's not all humans equally that are causing these problems you know certain humans are causing more problems than others but again I think those kind of terms like capitalocene and so on they're they just don't seem to have the same kind of gathering potential that Anthropocene has. So although it's not something that I engage with within my own work, it's like as, as a term, it's it has been useful to kind of connect with other people doing similar research and thinking about similar questions, maybe in slightly different ways. And, and just to add to as well that sense of it being quite human focused, I think particularly in relation to the sea, which is such a non-human space, you know, it's very difficult 
to to live on the sea for long periods or there is some sense of being able needing to come back to the land at some point that you know a, a total focus on the human particularly if you're looking at stuff that's like out in the oceans you know you can talk about coastal narratives or, or poetry in, in perhaps a slightly different way but like those really in sea things there is a contention very much with the non-human and I think that's also why the term in relation to the sea can can be a little bit problematic for me. I just wanted to I think it was probably the same conference that I started looking at the Anthropocene um, that Ellen attended and I found it useful from the point of view that the term has now seen slipping over into mainstream so it allows um, an opportunity for an investigation of a particular area and deliver it and speak to a wider audience although there are problems and I very much would agree with Thomas that it is still latching on to humans at the centre of the, uh, the conceit or the, the concept behind it um, and in my research I always try and come back to the physical experience of being on the sea as a sailor or alongside experience the sea and use that as an opening point. It's the materiality, it's the physicality of the smell, the sound, all of that. But I need the language to explain what I feel and think um, and what I imagine um, animals, birds or the stone or the rock huge big rock is always in my mind that's on Silver Strand Beach, you know, and what is it thinking or feeling or experiencing? So this is where I I, I search for the language to explain this outward, to, to deliver what I what I feel and think um, to others. And it's useful for me so far until I find better language. So great question. Thanks, everyone. Um, so... I wanted to ask before we get on to the questions that are appearing in the Q&A box, if you had any questions for each other. <laughs> um, Ellen, are you, are you raising your hand? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's it's kind of one each for Thomas and Bernadette, but I think maybe it speaks to this sense of the kind of contradictions that are inherent in the sea. So from my own work, I'm kind of thinking about the way in which the sea offers this kind of language, but at the same time, it, it goes beyond that language. You can't capture it in language, so those kind of contradictions. Um, so, Thomas, I was really interested in your reading of that scene um, in the bath. It just seemed like there was so much at play. You talk about, like, power dynamics, gender dynamics, and so on. Um, I was also wondering, is there anything around the kind of the different types of water there as well? So obviously, like, she's connected to the sea. It, it seems, I'm not familiar with the novel, but from your presentation, it seems like um, the, the the woman is kind of connected to the sea. But obviously, the bath is kind of more of a domestic space or domestic water. And I was just wondering if, like, that's something, if there's something in that, the different kind of type of water that, that was used. And then for Bernadette, um, I also really, that idea of the kind of, the sense of the sewage being like life enhancing for the seagulls and kind of perhaps a symbol of death for us and I suppose the idea of the waste sea as well I wondered if you could maybe speak a bit more to to that so they were my questions whoever wants to go first. <laughs> no, no, I think great question Ellen um, and I think actually and this speaks to what, what, what we were I think it almost kind of emerged from all of our talks earlier that it's not so much in the sea, there's often not so much a binary as there is a continuity of fluidity. And I think what, what I, my reading of Orkney anyway, is that even in that bathtub scene for the girl, there is no 
there is a continuity of, of, of moistures and of, of, of experiences of being entangled. So even though she sometimes stands on the beach, sometimes sits in the water, uh, almost freezing to death, sometimes stands on a hill and watches, and then sometimes she splashes in the water inside. For her, it's, it's, a, it's a continuity, of, there's a continuity of experience there. So overcoming her fear of drowning in the bathtub extends to being able to, to immerse herself even more in the sea and vice versa. Um, and it's, I think it's precisely that where it also it becomes so clear that, that her husband Richard doesn't understand that. Um, and that he um, still likes to think, I think from the quote, there's a sense that he still likes to think he's in charge or that he's still able to stop what is happening if he only wants to. And that's, that's where they really clash. Um, and I just find that so interesting. I think it's going to, I saw a question by Ashley, I won't go into it just yet, but I think um, that sense of continuity that we find. So it's, it's not so much a land binary, which you often, we're often thinking in land sea binaries, but that sea, it's actually more of a continuity of, of, of being in a porosity. Um, and that really, I think that's re really expressed in Orkney and makes it so powerful. Uh, so I hope that kind of answers the question. That's, that's my reading of it anyway. Um, Ellen, you had a question for me in relation to sewerage as life enhancing. And also you were um, speaking about the idea of the waste sea. I found both topics, they connect with each other, but they, I also find them problematic to follow through to a definitive end. In reading Beckett's text, I can make an argument about the sewerage as being life enhancing because the sea birds are feeding on it. Um, but if you consider sewerage today is consists of so much more than just um, uh, organic matter, even if it is our fecal matter. And as a result, it is a pollutant even for seagirls that are feeding on it. And it's also polluting our our environment. And we, we have that experience ourselves, even like there's, there's warnings about swimming off, um, off Monkstown Bay, you know, the, the, the water conditions aren't great, you know. Um, but it's also really interesting that the in in literature we have this figurative idea of the waste sea as a sea of void, um, as having no value. But we also discard our waste into it and we push it out to sea and it, it's taken by the tide and it disappears and we think it's making it all clean and the sea is clean, but it's disappearing and going somewhere else and polluting elsewhere. Um, and I find it interesting to 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 read. Beckett's surge and Beckett's reference to waste. He's almost taking the figurative description of the literary waste and making it a real, physical, filthy, awful lane waste sea. And I'm reading him back, but it's like it's he's making a point. He's not not being an environmentalist and trying to educate us or anything like that, but I can't see how he would ignore his references to this waste going into the sea and not be aware himself of Homer's reference to the waste sea or um, reference to, to this waste void space that we go into that, that has been a consistent imagery in, again, our Western, our Western lives, our Western discourse. Um, it's completely different in different parts of the world in the specific island culture where the sea is is. Now, this is me stepping outside and I should be really, really careful because I don't know enough about it. But I've been reading around 
how um, different parts of the world have a very, very different experience of the sea and understanding and attitude towards it than we ourselves do. So, um, it, again, there, there are questions that I need to follow through further, push the point, push the boundary and see how it links back to, to Beckett and but also to Irish literature that addresses topics of the sea, you know. Um, I don't know whether I've got anywhere with answering that question, but I've tried to. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thank you, Bernadette. Um, so Tomas mentioned a question from Ashley Cahillane in the in the chat, which hopefully all of the panellists um, can see. Um, I'm going to read it out. Um, so Ashley says, thanks for the brilliant presentations. These presentations really bring up land versus sea tensions. Do we think that a turn towards the sea is a reaction to problems on land or human economic colonial problems, as Ellen's talk especially suggests? If so, I'm wondering, does a turn towards the sea mean staying there intellectually or culturally? Um, or is there an impetus to return to land, either in literary works or in eco-criticism slash the humanities? So some of these land-sea tensions that your talks brought up. I think what's interesting for me in that, and it might be a bit of a cop-out answer, is that the tensions are never really resolved at sea. You know, as I was mentioning, it's it's not totally feasible for to, to live at sea or to, to dwell at sea as if we're thinking of that kind of Heideggerian sense of like dwelling with the land and being um, with the land, which brings its own problems. Um, I think the move to sea as some of the poetry is suggesting opens up these new perspectives and it challenges um, them and it's in dialogue with those kind of landed concerns um, at least you know in in the stuff that I've been looking at it it brings a new perspective and but a lot of the, the times particularly in Irish poetry it's it's a kind of momentary thing you know it is a like a boat trip or an experience on the beach it's not it's not fully at sea so that's probably why I have that perspective it's slightly different from the Caribbean side of things um, particularly when poets write about for example the middle passage which was the the journey that um, people sold into slavery would have um, been forced into from Africa um, to um, to the Americas um, there's very much a sense of the sea kind of containing the memory of that as well as the, the kind of physical bodies that were drowned there and so on. So um, that's a kind of constant presence in the sea, which they're then viewing from the land. So there's a, a slight, you know, they're still in dialogue, they're still in, in conversation, but I don't know that it's totally possible to get rid of the land if you, you know, that's, it's it's not really feasible in, in my view, but that more there's this kind of dialogue or there's this interaction between both and that we need to draw attention to what is happening at the sea in various different cultural, economic, social things. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Ellen. Um, Tomas and Bernadette, you're welcome to respond to uh, if you want to, but also, um, <laughs> also you don't have to. Um, this is an interesting question for Tomas. Uh, okay, Bernadette, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, actually, thanks, Ashley, for the, uh, the question. Um, I actually came to my PhD in seascapes because I thought there wasn't enough um, reference to the sea or discourse around the sea. And I couldn't understand it because I live by the coast. I live on an island. Um, you know, we, we're 
in this location that we're right on the very, very edge of uh, Europe. We're on the western side of the British Isles, you know, that we are really, really um, uh, somebody I think said there was a very there's only a very short distance between any town in Ireland um, and the sea. I think it was around 30 odd miles, but I might be wrong. And that's so please don't quote me. But I couldn't understand why all of the conversations then uh, literary academic conversations appeared to be about land and famine and connection with the land and and I was lost and it's it just so happens that this turn to the sea has coincided around the same time that I I turned towards an academic interest in uh, investigating the sea and I think yes there are tensions um, between the land and the sea that can be read and I think a coastal inhabitant will be very much um, connected. They will have that dual focus, that dual awareness. And the, this opening up, this turn towards the sea gives us an opportunity to express that, that duality. Um, and for some people, it is more weighed on one side. It's not an equal duality. Um, and I think as, a, as an island nation, okay, we don't go out fishing and we don't spread around the... the, the we, our fishing industry is declining. It's not like it is an Icelandic community or in Spain, the coastal parts of Spain and Portugal, where they go way out into the seas and, and fish to much larger extents. Our whole life seems to have been brought inward in Ireland historically over the centuries. And now we're, we're looking outward. And I think it's it's good for us to do, to do that and to realise that we are, in the end, we are human beings that need land to stand on and to grow our food on predominantly or to get that fresh water from. Um, but as an island nation, as a coastal community, we can't turn our backs on the sea. We have to be aware of it. And it is what gives life to the planet. I mean, we are the blue planet and we're the blue planet because we're surrounded by oceans and sea. Sorry, get off my soapbox. Thank you. Hey, that's great. Thanks, Bernadette. I think it's really interesting to think about why well, I suppose eco-criticism and then the environmental humanities did seem to ignore the sea and water for such a long time. I mean, I think quite a few quite a few of us have found ourselves reacting to the um, Cheryl Glockfelty and Harold Fromm's kind of definition of eco-criticism as one foot, as it one foot on land, one in literature, and then you kind of think, well, where's everything else? Where's all the water? Um, I, can I just jump in there and just say, yeah, yeah. So I find it so interesting because to me, the best place to start performing eco-criticism is in the water because you're immersed because of the porosity of bodies in water. Um, that's where it all starts. It's the Stacey Alimo, which, you know, it's where the borders fade between who I am, what I'm surrounded by, or what is part of my body, what isn't part of my body, the borders fade. And that's where, where you can do some very, very productive eco-critical interventions. Uh, so forgetting about the sea in that sense, it's bizarre. Uh, really, and it's good that it's you know that we're demanding a return or a return towards the sea uh, in that sense. And aren't our and aren't our bodies consisting of about seventy percent salted water as well? So now I'm certainly not trying to connect my Beckett work with this global idea that we're part of a happy dippy connection with the land or with the sea um but it's just it's we can't ignore it it's, it's, it is part of the global planet um salt water within us around us um and why can't we have a discussion about one without excluding the other we can take uh, 
a critical stance to make a point that makes an argument against, but I don't think there should be for one side or the other. It's it's all it's all connected, um, in my opinion. I think Astrid and Aymanis' work is really interesting on those connections of, uh, between kind of bodies and water as well. Um, and so I'm going to move on to another question from the chat, which all of the panelists should hopefully be able to see, which is for Tomas um, from Barbara New Flynn. Um, he says, thanks for all the great presentations. Um, a question slash comment for Tomas. There's a story in Irish oral tradition about a man who marries a sea woman slash mermaid, but the woman never speaks. An interesting parallel, perhaps, to Sackville's novel, um, more info in the National Folklore Collection, UCD. Yeah, I, I just saw it there. Um, I think it was very interesting. I wasn't aware of this story in Irish oral tradition, um, but it's very interesting because in Orkney, one of the very few instances where there's almost unfiltered narrative by the girl herself is when she recounts two different versions of this story. Um, so two folk tales, Orcadian folk, folk tales that she seems to know from growing up there, which it's not entirely clear. And they show two different ways of relating between the human and the non-human. And one of them features a crafter marrying a mermaid and then being in a sort of harmonious relationship um, and he disappearing into the undersea kingdom uh, with her. And the other one shows a totally different relationship in which the crafter steals um, the seal skin. So she can turn back into a seal, but only if she has the skin. And when she takes off the skin, she turns into a woman. If the skin is stolen, she won't be able to, to perform the, the reverse transformation. Um, and she tells these stories, I believe, with a with a view to to conveying some kind of message to Richard of these are, you know, there's a tension here and he doesn't understand it, um, predictably so. Uh, but it's very interesting, and I'm definitely going to look into the, the, the Irish oral um, or the Irish version of this or the Irish folklore here, because it would definitely enhance my reading of Orkney there. Uh, and I would recommend anyone who is interested to then also look at Orkney and, and see what how that incorporates this this kind of mythology as well. Yeah, that, that's really great to know. And it's, it sort of seems like the the kind of Selkie stories about kind of violence against women and also kind of about women taking on these kind of transgressive roles, often leaving their family. It seems like that that fits in, in really interesting ways with um, the kind of negotiation of gender and power in yeah. in Orkney. Um, so we've got another question from Tressa Delufry. Um, so can the speakers unpack how they perceive the changing representations and formal approaches to the sea over time and what this might tell us about changing ecological vocabularies or ecological literacies around topics like risk, hazard, depth, surface, abundance, scarcity and climate change? Really great question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can quite unpack it here, unfortunately. But um, I, I think one interesting thing to note, given again that we're going back to that kind of that eco the eco critical reader text as being a, a a defining moment in that field. What's quite interesting about that is that and and the impetus behind it is very much the sense of drawing attention to um, the physical environment in literature as a way of combating or thinking about or drawing attention to climate change. So it has that kind of activist position, whether that comes, you know, whether that actually happened or not is a different question, but that, that sense of it being an impetus for change was very much there. And what's really interesting, um, given that it's published in the late 90s, is that most of people who are writing about 
the current moment at that time mention rising sea levels. But then they just turn away very quickly from any concerns um, about the sea. So even though it is one of the kind of driving factors in drawing attention to the physical environment, the essay will then turn to look at, you know, how whoever was representing the land or representing different types of things. So I think that that in the recent years, in the last 10 years, that there has been more attention drawn to the blue humanities, that that, that has shifted a little bit and has shifted perhaps more widely as well. You know, you see images when, when people talk about climate change. And again, going back to that conference that I think Bernadette and I were both talking about like the image on the front of that was these kind of pieces of plastic suspended in the sea. So the sea does figure as somewhere that um, tells us about climate change, but and, and even things like melting ice caps and so on, we're thinking about water again. But again, to what extent we're trying to tackle those things, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but that's kind of in terms of a change, that's maybe where I see there has been more attention drawn to to the representations of the sea from that kind of seminal text to now? Um, it's a pretty, it's a big question, but I don't know if um, Tomas and Benedetti want to come in on that or you feel like Ellen's done a pretty good job of um, expressing how you feel about these changes in formal approaches and representation. I'm happy to jump in briefly. Um, what I've noticed when I was doing the research for my thesis is that there is definitely a maybe an early Cli-Fi or in, in particular, but also in the novels, proto-Cli-Fi, like from Ballard onwards to the drowned world kind of onwards, there, there is definitely a focus on risk and hazard and encroachment, physical encroachment of the seas, the rising sea levels. Um, uh, in Ballard is the petrification, the petrifaction or what you call that, the sort of the, the festering sense of, of dirty ecology, if, if I can call it that, where there's, there's a lot of biological process going on. I found that that sense of solely, fo solely focusing on risk and hazard and encroachment has shifted somewhat in recent work towards much more productive ways of, of representing relationships to the sea. Um, so looking forward again, being able to look forward again, and then narrativizing a future in which um, Obviously, climate change is, is occurring and rising sea levels do occur and they are reality, but there is a shift towards a more um, a more positive narrative in the sense that there are possibilities of, of what Paraguay would call partial recuperation, getting on together, uh, creating marine life worlds that are inhabitable by humans, non-humans, more than humans. Uh, so there's definitely a shift there that, that I think in, in, in recent climate fiction, uh, Orkney would be an example. Um, but there's there, there is I think a lot and a lot coming forthcoming I hope as well to kind of mark that shift. Yeah. So we've got another question from um, John Brannigan in the chat, which I'll just read out. Um, so John's wondering how you respond to Hester Bloom's statement that the sea is not a metaphor, and her call for oceanic studies to be relentlessly materialist, especially given that you're all working on literary texts which at some level work with the sea as metaphor. So yeah, a really interesting question. Um, please uh, unmute yourself if you want to respond. Yeah, it was something I, I actually thought about quite a bit at the beginning of my own thesis. Um, I think it's a really useful statement as a kind of kind of a polemical outlook and, and a call to draw attention to things that haven't been 
given attention before and um, her work in particular on sailors and kind of global positioning and so on, um, I found incredibly useful. Um, and more broadly, that kind of materialist sense of drawing attention to, I mean, she talks a lot about the work on the sea, but also, you know, the sea as a kind of a real and material thing and, and interactions with it in a real and material way. So um, I would perhaps say it's not only a metaphor. Um, in a more recent, there was a, a kind of a special issue that comparative literature did on oceanic studies. And in that, um, Ashley Cohen, I was just double checking my reference there, but Ashley Cohen talks about um, the importance of the kind of imaginative space of the sea um, for creating global connections, which obviously for me is quite important in, in terms of doing that comparative work. Um, so the sea as a place that does have um, more cultural and, and metaphorical associations can actually bring um, different literatures, different um, you know, places and peoples together, even if they have diverse um, backgrounds and, and histories as Ireland and the Caribbean do. So, yeah, I think it, it's not only a metaphor, it's probably um, how I might amend that. But I think the, the statement itself was very useful and very necessary. And I think that work is still very important. But as a literary scholar, I, I don't think I could ever um, discount the importance of metaphor. And I think that's what um, Ashley Cohn is suggesting in her article as well. I think I would agree with Ellen from that point of view. Um, I think as well as the sea being presented within literature as a metaphor, we as readers bring a metaphoric reading ourselves. And it's very easy to go down that path um, and apply a film or a, a veil or a lens across the reading sort of that that can be quite different from what was originally intended by the by the author. Um, and this is where I sort of try and return all the time to that material presence of the sea, the physicality of it, the, the ties, the sand. I even go down as far as in another paper I was doing about grains of sand and sort of try and see if that can help anchor, anchor my work. Um, and I think I read Beckett himself said that he doesn't use signs or metaphors in his later work anyway. Um, but you'd question that at the same time when you're reading his work because it seemed to suggest a particular approach, a particular understanding. And then yet within that same sentence at the other end of it, just past the, the next clause on contra contradicts it altogether. So it's, it's, it's almost like a watery substance he's presenting on the page for the reader. Um, so again, I, uh, I have taken Hester Bloom's statement or comment and used it as a as a means to start an investigation um and see where it, see where it leads see where the voyage takes me pardon the pun if i can jump in um I've, yeah I'm, I'm i agree with bernadette and and, and ellen that you know there's a the productive matter of employing metaphor and, and, and delving through metaphor from from the perspective of english studies I think it's also where eco-criticism does enforce or it's almost forces a sort of interdisciplinary turn where it's not it's never just about textual analysis anymore. Uh, it's also about a turn towards the physical materiality of the sea. Um, you know, this, this, the, the sea as sea investigating um, what Bernadette mentioned earlier, what is that rock thinking? Um, what is what are these gradients of ascent? What is the essence? What is the reality? What is the, the the life world of, the, of that other than human 
element um, or animal or being or phenomenon. Um, sometimes I, I, I do think sometimes it might force us to close the book and turn towards the sort of material inscription of the sea. Um, so in what way does the, the physical sea inscribe itself into our life worlds? Um, in what sense do marine and uh, um, animal and, and object others inscribe themselves into human worlds? Um, but we're all the better equipped, I would say, for the fact that we're coming from, from textual analysis uh, and that we're able to read metaphor and that we're able to go beyond mere textual analysis. Mere would be a, a strong term, maybe, but from textual analysis towards that sort of interdisciplinary, eco-critical um, toolbox. Brilliant. Thanks for three really interesting responses. I'm just going to really quickly ask our final question um, from Karen Nagai. Um, and I think I'm going to ask it to Bernadette, if that's okay. Because as a sailor, I think you might have an interesting perspective on this. Um, so the question is, may I ask what you make of the ship as a space, if it belongs to the sea or to the land? And you've, we've got one minute, so <laughs> no pressure. There's a Foucault um, who made the argument that the sea was, the ship was a, a, a minute structure of land on the sea and that it was a self-contained space. But I think that very much depends on uh, a contextual time time frame when you had sailors living on board uh, sail ships. Um, whereas now, uh, it, 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 again, it's a very it's it's a cultural response because Pacific Islanders um, or uh, southeastern communities where where the the people themselves live so much closer to the sea. Um, and use the, their land is the sea, and the ship is there for an extension of, of themselves. Um, it's completely different to on this side of the world. I get my dinghy and I pull it out and launch it, or go sailing, or climb on board somebody's yacht, and we have all the home comforts with us as we're going exploring the Scottish Isles. You know, so then it is the land. So it really, you really have to look at the particular situation and the particular time frame to to make the argument one way or the other. Um, I mean, a ship, it, like even even the wording ship. Is it a ship? Is it a boat? Is it a dinghy? Um, is it, is it a made out of substances that are originally part of the land? Um, the tree is belongs on land. The tree, when you chop it down, becomes a log, a dead tree. But if that log ends up in the sea, it is now flotsam, floatsam, it, it floats, it gains marine life underneath it. So, um, it is a means by which you can get from one land base to another or a human can sit on a log and it can float and get from, from one place to another. And therefore, it is the equivalent of a ship. It's a transport method. So, yeah, that's another paper. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, thanks for those reflections, Bernadette. And I'm sorry we can't think more about ships because I'm sure there will be much to say about Caribbean mm -hmm. context and about Orcadian context. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to unfortunately have to end here. So thank you to all of our panellists for three fascinating papers and for engaging so generously with, with all of our often um, quite difficult questions. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.